at Luke's Gospel, the fifth chapter. So we're going to jump right in because there's so much I want to share. And that time goes by so fast that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time um, reviewing in this particular series. So to bring us right to where we were last time, we were talking about the fact that uh, Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he was not really readily accepted. And he was considered extremely controversial at the time. And he began his ministry in his own hometown of Nazareth, as we know. And the community around him actually tried to kill him. And you can jot this down if you weren't here last time. Luke's Gospel, the fourth chapter, verses 13 through 30. That explains exactly what happened when he began his public ministry. And I shared it with you out of the Amplified, but you should read it out of the Amplified and the message. That is absolutely wonderful. Um, and I also mentioned that we personally should never be discouraged if when we're sharing the good news of Jesus with people, if we don't get you know wonderful, warm and fuzzy feelings and people aren't telling us how great we are and appreciative, don't feel bad about that. Be encouraged, recognizing that you're in the best of company because again, we're no better than our Lord. And if that happened to him, I mean, they tried to kill him. Nobody's really trying to kill us. So we should really be very encouraged by it. Um, and then the other thing that we also recognized was the fact that even with them trying to kill him, he never gave up. And that's something that we really have to, because you know, we get our feelings hurt and then we don't want to say anything. You know, somebody looks at us funny and we're not going to say a word any, you know, ever again. We can't be that way. What did he do? He just went to a different area and just kept doing the same thing. So he went to Galilee, which is actually a much larger region. And the people there accepted him just fine. So, you know, if your Uncle Bobo or whoever doesn't like what you're saying, don't worry about it. Just go on to somebody else and know that everything is going to be okay. So turn with me to Luke's Gospel, the fifth chapter and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and this is exactly where we left off the last time. Um, so I'm going to share it with you really quick out of the Message Bible. Luke's Gospel chapter 5 beginning with verse 1 it says, once when he was standing on the shore of Lake G G don't even <laughs> Gennesaret. This is so funny because last week this word I don't know what it is. It just irritates me but anyway Lake Gennesaret, which is actually the Sea of Galilee, but being literal, it is Lake Gennesaret. The crowd was pushing in on him to better hear the word of God, meaning they wanted to hear it so much that they were actually like cramming in on him. So what did he do? He noticed two boats that were tied up and the fishermen had just left them and they were out scrubbing their nets. So he climbed into the boat that was Simon's and asked him to put out a little from the shore, I meaning just move away from the shore. And sitting there using the boat for a pulpit, he taught the crowd. So that's literally what he had to do. Now the other thing that I think was very interesting, and we talked briefly about this, is that, and this we really can learn seriously, uh, from Jesus is that instead of him trying to maximize his popularity, which is what people 
have a tendency sometimes to do. They're more interested in how popular they are. And I mean, even some churches do that. They're more interested in the numbers and how many people are sitting in the seats and how many people they can bring in. And here's the thing, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Yes, it is wonderful if you are sitting in a church and you have 10,000 people or 20,000 people, all of that's great, that's wonderful. It's wonderful because they're having the opportunity to hear the word. That's why it's wonderful, not to just be great to see how many people you can stand in front of. Don't ever get so caught up that you forget the message and you get caught up in the popularity and all the rest of that. Jesus never did that. He wasn't concerned with that. And it's something that we live in a day and age of social media. And in modern day times, we can, even as believers who love God, get caught up into how many likes do we have on Facebook? And how many people are really sending us pictures of you know, their friends and blah, blah, blah. And I even told you last week how some of us call these people our friends that we knew 40 years ago. And we don't really know them. Friend is a covenant word. They probably are sitting up laughing at you and you know whatever, the same way they were doing 40 years ago. But you don't remember that because you're just excited because you have X amount of people on your page. Social media has its place, but don't get caught up. There used to be a game that was on Facebook. Now, this was years ago. I don't know how many years, over 10 years ago, called Farmville. I don't think they still have it on there, but I don't really know because now I don't go on there that often. I loved Farmville. I mean, I created a farm. I had all kinds of little planters. And I remember at one time, uh, Pastor Price was uh, teasing his wife, Angel, and I because we were comparing Farmville and how many tulips did she have? <laughs> I mean, I was into this game. And it dawned on me, oh my gosh, how much time am I spending on Farmville? I mean, I really, it was ridiculous. And I just had to say, okay, Guess what? Farmville doesn't have me, so that's the end of Farmville. So I just stopped it. But what I'm saying is you can get so caught up in doing things. I don't care what it is. We're supposed to always live a fasted life. So don't get so caught up in the popularity of how many people do I know in social media that you forget who you are and whose you are. And don't ever allow anything because all of our actions, I don't care what they are, they can diminish your message. Don't ever forget that. So it's very important. So that's something that we can learn from Jesus because he never allowed that to happen. He was more interested in his message. And that is something that all of us can learn from. So now turn with me to John's Gospel, the sixth chapter. And we're going to look at verses 22 through 71. I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified because the Amplified, as you know, you hear me say all the time, has the qualifiers. But I want you, when you get the opportunity, to look at this in the message because the message breaks it down. Or you can even use the easy to read if you want. Either one of those versions break it down. But I really want you to get the, the gist of this. So we're going to do the Amplified tonight. So starting with, this is John, the sixth chapter, starting with verse 22, it says, the next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea realized that there had been only one small boat there and that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now some other small boats from Tiberias had come in near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they boarded the small boats themselves and came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they saw him on the other side of the sea, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Jesus answered, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, you have been searching for me, not because you saw the signs attesting miracles, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures and leads to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For God the Father has authorized him and put his seal on him. Then they asked him, what are we to do so that we may habitually be doing the works of God? I'm going to pause here. Notice that it phrases it that way, that we may habitually do the works of God. Not just do the works of God when you come to church on Sunday, or when you come to Bible study on Thursday, or when you're trying to impress so-and-so, but make it a habit, just like you know, bathing or brushing your teeth is a habit. That's why they're asking the question that way. I thought that was a very nice way of phrasing it. So picking it up at verse 29, Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe. What does it mean to believe? to adhere to, trust in, rely on, and have faith in the one whom he has sent. So they said to them, what sign, attesting miracle, will you do that we may see it and believe you? What supernatural work will you do as proof? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written in scripture. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus replied to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never be hungry. And the one who believes in me as savior will never be thirsty. For that one will be sustained spiritually. Interesting the way they explain it. They will be sustained spiritually. But as you told me, you have seen me and still do not believe. All that my father gives me will come to you. And the one who comes to me, I will most certainly not cast out. I will never, never reject anyone who follows me. But I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but that I give new life and raise it up at the last day. For this is my father's will and purpose, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him as savior will have eternal life. And I will raise him up from the dead on the last day. Now the Jews murmured and found fault with him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They kept saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he know? No, how does he now have the arrogance to say, I have come down out of heaven? So Jesus answered, stop murmuring among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him giving him the desire to come to me. And I will raise him up from the dead on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who was with the father and who is from God. He alone 
has seen the Father. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, he who believes in me as Savior, whoever adheres to, trusts in, relies on, and has faith in me already, has eternal life. That is, now possesses it. I am the bread of life, the living bread which gives and sustains life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, believes in me, accepts me as savior, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh body. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, unless you believe in me as savior and believe in the saving power of my blood, which will be shed for you, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, believes in me, accepts me as savior, has eternal life. That is, now possesses it. And I will raise him up from the dead on the last day. For my flesh is true, spiritual food. And my blood is true, spiritual drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, believes in me, accepts me as savior, remains in me, and I, in the same way, remain in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, even so the one who feeds on me, believes in me, accepts me as Savior, will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. It is not like the manna that our fathers ate and they eventually died. The one who eats this bread, believes in me, accepts me as Savior, will live forever. He said these things in a synagogue while he was teaching in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a difficult and harsh and offensive statement. Who can be expected to listen to it? But Jesus, aware that his disciples were complaining about it, asked them, does this cause you to stumble and take offense? What then will you think if you see the Son of Man ascending to the realm where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh conveys no benefit. It is of no account. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, providing eternal life. But still, there are some of you who do not believe and have faith. For Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray him. And he was saying, this is the reason why I have told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him. That is, unless he is enabled to do so by the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples abandoned him and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12 disciples, do you not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom, sh to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are our only hope. We have believed and confidently trusted, and even more, we have come to know by personal observation and experience that you are the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12 disciples? And yet one of you is a devil. 
ally of Satan. Now he was speaking to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12 disciples, was about to betray him. That, I agree, was a lot. <laughs> However, notice how often this translation specifically says, and I, I thought this was interesting, I should have counted it, how many times it says, believes in me, accepts me as savior. That is extremely important because the other thing that we have to keep in mind is there were a lot of people who, and there are a lot of people to this day, who go to church, they're faithful, they would be considered disciples or followers of Christ, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they believe in him and accept him as savior. It just means that they say I'm Christian and they go to church and, and all the rest of that. That is something that's very, very uh, critical and very crucial. Now to break down all this stuff that we read for those of you who are taking notes, um, let's see. In verse 23 of this particular chapter, so if we go back, it says, now some other small boats from Tiberias. People are like, where is Tiberias? It's a city located on the northwest, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and the city was actually built by Herod, and it served as a capital city, really, to honor the Roman emperor. So just in case you wanted to know that. Um, also, Jesus uses the words, this is just tidbits, but I liked this. Um, in verse 35, because uh, that's the first time we see him actually do it. So in verse 35, Jesus replied to them, I am the bread of life. Okay, well, he uses I am, and this is very interesting, 20 times in this particular Gospel of John. He actually uses that phrase, I am. Um, now, especially memorable are these little places that you can jot down. I'm not going to go through all 20 of them. But I am is followed by a metaphor that declares his deity and his relationship to mankind as savior. So uh, John 6.35 is the first one. If you go to John 8, verse 12, he talks about how he is the light. If you go to John 10, verse 9, he tells you he's the door. If you go, drop right down to verse 11 in chapter 10, he tells you that he's the good shepherd. If you go to John 11, verse 25, he lets you know that he is the resurrection. John 14, verse 6, which everybody pretty much knows, that's where he tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then chapter 15, verse 5, he tells us that he is the vine. Now, just to be clear, when we read verse 66, it says as a result of, his, of this, of what was going on, many of his disciples abandoned him. He was not referring to the original 12 disciples. He was referring to the masses, meaning all of those people during that time that were following him around from place to place were considered his disciples, but that they were not the 12 ordinary men, okay? Just to make sure that we're clear on that. However, when he's asking, and he, he kind of makes that clear because when you look at verse 67, he said to the 12 disciples, do you do not want to leave too, do you? When he poses that question, he's just talking to those 12 ordinary men, those original disciples. 
That's just to make sure we're all staying on the same page because the thing that's so important is we know that disciple, a disciple is considered a learner. It's a person who's learning, just like we have Christians who are disciples, who are learning the word and who, you know, and that's a great thing, but that does not have anything to do with their belief system. You know, like you can learn a lot about the word, but if you don't apply the word, if you do not believe in the word, really believe it, and to a point where when that pain hits you out of nowhere and you don't know where it comes, you can be very learned and you can know a whole bunch about the word, but if you don't believe that that word, when you take it and apply it to that pain that you are now feeling, that's something altogether different. So that, you know, that's what the difference is in <laughs> believing the word and just, you know, being a disciple that hears it and you're very learned and you know it. So those who continued to stay with Jesus during this time period included first and foremost the 12 ordinary, unexceptional men. Now Jesus had a specific strategy for advancing his kingdom and based on these 12 men rather than the clamoring multitudes. So he was not paying attention to all of these people who were just trying to you know, come at him. <laughs> In other words, he was not paying attention if he had a Facebook page to all these people who were his friends. That was not what was motivating him at the time. He chose to work, however, with a few fallible people rather than advance his message through force personal popularity, or a fancy public relations campaign. That was not it. The future of the church and the growing success of the gospel depended entirely on the faithfulness of these chosen 12 men. And as I said before, there really was no plan B. There wasn't a plan B. The entire strategy of Jesus models the character of the kingdom itself. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, and we're going to look at chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. I'm going to share it with you first out of the New King James Version, which is what most people have. And verse 20 says, Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation nor Will they say, see here or see there? For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. That's very good. If we look at it in the Amplified, it says, now having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he replied, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed or with a visible display. Nor will people say, look, here it is, or there it is, for the kingdom of God is among you because of my presence. And then the message says, Jesus grilled by the Pharisees on when the kingdom of God would come, answered the kingdom of God does not come by counting the days on the calendar, nor when someone says, look here or there it is. And why? Because God's kingdom is already among you. It's very clear. I mean, he's making it clear. Another key factor is that the kingdom advances as stated, and you could just jot this down. Uh, you don't have to turn to it. Zechariah, the fourth chapter, verse six. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Twelve ordinary men under the power of the Holy Spirit were a more profound force than the multitudes whose initial enthusiasm for Jesus were, was most likely provoked by sheer curiosity. 
And that's something that, you know, you can even look at this in your own circle of people that you deal with on a continuous basis. You will find that your associates, people that you see and deal with all the time, are different than your friends. Friends being a covenant word. Friends being the person who's willing to, you know, let down or put down his life for your sake. That's a friend. I have very few friends. I have a whole lot of associates. But you know, and you also know those people who really care about you when you, you know, are, are growing through a challenging time, they're the ones who show up. And all the multitudes of people that you may know and all those precious people that you have on social media don't even give a care. That's where you know the big difference, you know. So <laughs> Jesus, again, is showing us that we need to start paying attention to who we actually keep around us and keep close to us. You know, one of the things I, I remember, I heard this from Joyce Meyer a few years ago. Well, it was probably many years ago, but I appreciated it because she had said that everybody has different giftings, and we know that. So, like, say, for instance, um, you're a person that you really don't know how to give good gifts. I Meaning some people have a, a talent for that. They know how to pick, like, that perfect gift. Other people give you gifts and you're like, are these all white elephant gifts? Are these gifts you had laying around and you just decided to give it to me? That really, it, it may not be that. Now it could be that that's what they did. But it could be that that's just not their gifting. So what she had suggested was, if you know there's an area that you're not really strong in, surround yourself with other people who are strong in that area. So they can kind of help you along. So if you're not good with giving gifts, Talk to somebody who's great at it, and that will help you. Or if you struggle with giving, like you know you have to give your tithe. You know that that's something that you owe. That's not really a gift. You owe that. Okay, you're supposed to do that. But you might be looking like, okay, but you expected me to really give more in the offering? Really? And you know that it's hard. Now, not that you go around and you sit and talk about tithes and offerings with people, but you may know that there's somebody who's very giving and they get all excited and this is what they do. Maybe you need to like take them to lunch or something. Maybe you need to spend a little more time with them to see. Or if it's somebody who they are here all the time. They love being a part of the Ministry of Health. And you're kind of looking at them like, what in the world's wrong with these people? Like, why are they doing this? Maybe hang out with them and see. There must be something to it. They're not insane. So there has to be a reason they're doing it. So we need to kind of, to make ourselves better, Put people around you that are going to make you better. Not people who are just going to sit and think you hung the moon and you're the greatest person in the world and that's wonderful. Because you're not going to necessarily grow. You know, so that's just something else. I, I think that we can learn that. Okay, and, and I think it's a good thing. All right. Uh, choosing these particular men that Jesus took the time to choose, he really invested a lot of his time in them. Meaning, because people in your inner circle, you do spend more time with them than, you know, people that you see every now and then. Turn with me to John's Gospel, the 15th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 16. Because he reminds us of this. John 15, verse 16. The New King James Version says, You did not choose me, this is Jesus talking to them, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. 
The Amplified expounds a little bit more and says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and I have appointed and placed and purposefully planted you so that you would go and bear fruit and keep on bearing, and that your fruit will remain and be lasting, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name as my representative, he may give to you. The message, you didn't choose me, remember? I chose you and put you in the world to bear fruit, fruit that won't spoil. As fruit bearers, whatever you ask the Father in relation to me, he gives you. I think that's wonderful. Choosing these men and calling them happened in distinct stages. Now this is really key. Careless readers of scripture, or I'll just say, care, people who read the scriptures but they're not carefully discerning the scriptures, sometimes think that certain passages are contradictory accounts of how Jesus called his apostles. Trust me, there is no contradiction. The passages are simply describing the different stages of the apostles' calling. These three, or these 12 ordinary men were called, but they were different stages. And the reason why this is so important to us is because when you stop and think about your own life, all of us are called to something. We don't think of it that way. Um, as I mentioned last time, I think, a lot of times people just think of the five-fold ministry. Everybody knows those verses. It's like, okay, you're called to the five-fold ministry, but if you're not, oh, well, you're just not called. You just live your life. No, 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 no. Every single one of you under the sound of my voice is called for something. You just may not know what that is yet. And it's important to understand that your calling may actually manifest in, in phases, not just like all of a sudden you just jump up and that's what you do. I mean, even those of us who have been called to be mothers, because we do know that you can be female and have a child, but that doesn't make you a mother. That just means you're a female who bore a child. There are some women who have children that really God used them as a vehicle to get that child here, but that not, was not necessarily their calling, okay? And then you will see other women who, oh my goodness, you just know. You don't even have to know them that well. You can just see they are just operating in their calling as mother. You can be called to something. People think that's simplistic. No, that is not simplistic. Somebody who is called to motherhood is extra special because they understand the importance of that life that God has put in their trust, and they guard that life and rear that child. And it's something that's really, really, really special. So the point is, all of you are called to something. You just may not necessarily realize what it is. So we're going to use these 12 ordinary men. We're going to look at their faces. And while we're doing it, I want you to start thinking about your own life and start seeing how maybe you're, maybe you already know what your calling is and you're already operating in it. Praise God if you do. But you know what? It's nothing wrong if you haven't figured it out yet because you're still here. So that means you don't have, you know, time is not, God is not bound by time. That's the other thing that sometimes we get all, you know, oh, well, I'm such and such an age. Do you think God does not know? He knows you're in before you ever got here. Your age does not matter. What matters is you fulfilling the purpose he called you here for. And once you get to that point, oh my gosh, it is just so wonderful. So anyway, let's look at John's gospel. You already in John, turn to the first chapter. And we're going to start looking at these phases that they went through. We're going to look at 
chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Okay, I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. And this is dealing with Jesus' public ministry. And these are really going to talk about his first converts. And it says, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked along and said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following him and asked them, what do you want? They answered him, Rabbi, which when translated actually means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they went with him and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, just so that you know, about the 10th hour. The Romans reckoned time from midnight. So, in Roman time, the 10th hour would be 10 o'clock a.m., as we know it. Now, the Jews reckoned daytime from sunrise about 6 a.m., so in their system, the 10th hour would be 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Here, in this particular verse I just read, either time is possible, I mean, technically. Though, the Roman reckoning of 10 a.m. would be more likely that it happened than uh, 4 p.m. Because the disciples, if it were in fact 4 p.m., the disciples might have been compelled to start going home, thinking that evening was setting up. Because remember, they didn't have mass transit. So they would have to like walk home or whatever. So if it was 4 o'clock, they were probably starting to think, you know, I don't want to miss dinner. I got to like, you know, start moseying on home. So, and then also, even if we look at it too, where it specifically says, um, they stayed with him that day. You know, so it just kind of like seems like it's, it's 10 a.m. Okay, so verse 40. One of the two who heard what John said and as a result followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first looked for and found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go into Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me as my disciple, accepting me as your master and teacher and walking the same path of life that I walk. Now, that is a big qualifier, because as I had said to you earlier before, follow can mean a lot of things, okay? It's actually got three different possibilities in the early stages of his ministry. So if you're taking notes, you can write it down. The first possibility is that he meant walking with him physically, like literally walking with him, okay? And that is merely being in his presence regardless of your personal belief or commitment. You're just following him along. You're walking with him. Number two, it could mean accepting and identifying with the salvation that he offered. And later on, number three, it could mean being identified with him by being subject to the scorn and rejection of unbelievers because of personal belief and commitment to him. So that's what the word follow. See, and I, again, I share all of these things with you because this is really Bible study. And I'm trying to give you a different way to look at it and not just you know, gloss over it and go follow, okay, and just go with the one thing because it could really mean any one of those three particular things. 
So, okay. Now, where did I end up? Okay, verse 30. Okay, and he said, all right, right, come to me. All right, follow me. Verse 40. Okay, no, I already did this. Okay, so now we're at verse 43. 40, 44? Okay, good. See, I'm so glad you all are paying attention. That is true. Yes, you're right, 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus from Nazareth, the son of Joseph, according to public record. Nathanael answered him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip replied, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, here is an Israelite indeed, a true descendant of Jacob, in whom there is no guile, nor deceit, nor duplicity. Nathanael said to Jesus, how do you know these things about me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were still under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus replied, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe in me? You will see greater things than this. Then he said to him, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the bridge between heaven and earth. Which is really, really pretty nice. I like that one. Okay, so look, go to Luke's Gospel. And this is Luke's Gospel, the fifth chapter. And we're just going to read verses 3 to 11. Okay, so starting with verse three, and I'm gonna share it with you out of the Amplified. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little distance from the shore. Remember, we read about that before. And he sat down and began teaching to the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch of fish. Simon replied, Master, we worked hard all night to the point of exhaustion and caught nothing in our nets. But at your word, I will do as you say and lower the nets again. Now I'm gonna pause there. That's a sign of someone who is believing in him because he does, you know, he thinks it's really kind of like, why are you asking me to do this? But because you're asking, I'm going to choose to be obedient. And you don't usually tend to be obedient unless you're kind of believing with the person in the person or having some trust in the person. So picking it back up in verse 6. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were at the point of breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats with fish so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all his companions were completely astounded at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon Peter. Jesus said to Simon, Have no fear. From now on you will be catching men. After they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him, becoming his disciples, believing and trusting in him, and following his example. If we look at Luke, you're already in Luke, just go really quickly to the sixth chapter, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. And
And it says, starting in the Amplified still, starting with verse 12, now at this time, Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples and selected 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, special messengers, personally chosen representatives. And we already know who they are. Simon, whom he also named Peter and his brother Andrew, and the brothers James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel. So now we know why we don't have a whole lot of children named Bartholomew. They decided to name them Nathaniel instead. Hmm. And Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was also called the Zealot. Judas, G Judas, oh gosh, Judas, also called Thaddeus, I know people named Thaddeus, though. The son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor to the Lord. Now, in the first, oh gosh, in the first verses that we read, John, the first chapter, verses 35 through 51, Andrew, John, Peter, Paul, and Nathaniel encountered Jesus for the first time. That's actually the first time that they encountered him. Their meeting occurs near the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the wilderness near the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was ministering. Andrew, John, and the others were there because they were already followers of John the Baptist. But when they heard John the Baptist state that Jesus was the Lamb of God, they decided to just go ahead and automatically follow Jesus. Now this was the first phase of their calling. Remember I had said that their calling came in phases? Well, this was the first phase. It was a calling to conversion. And you can write that down if you want. This illustrates how we, even now in modern day times, as disciples and every disciple is called first to salvation. Because for you to be a Christian, the first phase is that what? You must accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, correct? So that is the first phase, their first phase, conversion. Think about it. We must recognize Jesus. You have to embrace him as the true Lamb of God by faith. The initial stage of the Twelve's call did not involve full-time discipleship. That's something we often don't think about either. We just think, okay, they just were converted, they accepted him, and then just left and just walked off with him, and that was it. No. When reading the Gospels, they suggest that although they followed Jesus in the sense that they listened to his teaching and submitted to him as their teacher, they remained at their full-time jobs. They continued to earn a living through regular employment. You mean the 12 ordinary men had bills just like we do? Okay, they had to support their families and feed them just like we do? They did, okay, so they kept going on with their regular jobs. This explains why from this point until Jesus called them to full-time ministry, we see them always in the Gospels. They're doing what? They're fishing, they're mending their nets because that was their employment. That's what they continued to do. Now, the next phase of their calling was a call to ministry as described in Luke's Gospel, the fifth chapter. And we've been reading from that. If you want to read more of it, just read the whole chapter. As we read, this was when Jesus pushed out from the shore to escape the press of the multitudes and taught from Peter's boat. 
After teaching, he told Peter to head toward the deep water and let down his nets, as we just read. And Peter did as he was instructed, even though, and this is something to think about, as a fisherman, Peter knew that the timing and the place was all wrong. Because as a fisherman, Peter knew that fish were easier to catch at night when the water was cooler and the fish surfaced to feed at that point. He also knew that fish normally fed in water that was shallow, making them easier to catch. And remember, Jesus instructed him to go out in the deep, and he's like, why would we do that? So what Jesus was asking him to do was totally against what his knowledge as a fisherman was telling him would be the right thing to do. Just like by faith, we are asked to do some things we don't understand. Why in the world is he asking me to do that? It doesn't make any sense. It's not about making sense. It's about trusting him, believing in him, being obedient to what he tells you to do, and then you receiving the benefit of that obedience. And that's exactly what Peter went ahead and he did. So we read how Peter was exhausted, and that's the other thing, because <laughs> think about that. He was exhausted from working all night and catching nothing. And that we can look at different areas in our life where that's exactly what we have done. We have exhausted ourselves doing things, and we can't figure out why nothing is working. And I mean, we are tired. We just can't figure it out. When all we had to do was just sit down, take a moment, Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, and he will tell you just something else to do to just tweak the thing, and all of a sudden, whatever it was that you were trying to do all along just comes to pass. However, the key was that Peter, in this instance, was obedient to what Jesus had instructed, and the result we read overwhelmed their nets and nearly sink two of the fishing boats. Turn with me now to Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and we're going to look at the 19th verse. This is Matthew 4, verse 19. And the Amplified Version says, and he said to them, follow me as my disciples. This is the key. Accepting me as your master and teacher and walking the same path of life that I walk and I will make you fishers of men. And I have to stop there because I ran out of time. But when we come back, which I just knew I was going to get to, but I'm so excited about it, we're going to talk about the other phases. And we're going to see how those other phases in juxtaposition to our own lives, we're going to see how they connect. It, it, it's just, it's really, really beautiful. So anyway, we will stop for now. And we'll come back next time and pick up where we left off.